the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The message today will be taken from the Gospel lesson that we have just heard. So you may be seated. <clears throat> the last week of the year is always a kind of bittersweet one. We remember the joy of Christmas, the celebrations, and now we become acutely aware that another year of our lives is drawing to a close. And we, as Christians particularly, become aware of the obligations to our Lord that in many cases this past year we have not fully carried out with our resolutions. And we somberly think of what the year 1986 may hold for us and what the Lord would have us to do. There isn't a great deal of time left in 1985 or money for that matter either to make tax-deductible contributions. There isn't even much time left to take a good look at Halley's Comet, which as a teacher of astronomy I get asked about a great deal, where do I look and what do I look with? And in fact, there is in the newspaper right now a release that I think you should be aware of from Bethlehem that mentions East Meadow, Long Island. <laughs> An archaeologist who was born in East Meadow, Long Island, has just released to the Associated Press his theory that Halley's Comet was the star of Bethlehem in the year 12 BC, thereby coming up with the new idea that Jesus was not born, as had been supposed for about the last 100 years, in 4 BC, but rather in 12 BC. Well, what difference does that make? Well, I think it's exciting that the birth of Christ made Newsday in a press release by the Associated Press and that it was brought to the attention of the world by an archaeologist from East Meadow, Long Island. Is it true? As in all of science, nothing is really true. It's only a theory and a conclusion based on the observed information and then another theory will come along and so we struggle to get new knowledge, but we should never make the mistake, as I always tell my classes, of believing in any theory. I don't believe the theory of gravity. I don't believe the theory of evolution. I don't believe the theory of the Big Bang or the Little Bang or any other scientific theory, although I make my living teaching and writing about it. That's where the conflicts arise, when we believe things that next month will be changed. Instead, as a Christian, I want to turn to the Word of God where I believe what it says. That is what we reserve our belief for, what God says, not <clears throat> what people say. And so we look at today's Gospel, which is the only account <clears throat> of Jesus from the time of his birth until he's 30 years old. And we ask ourselves the questions, as we should with everything in the Bible, what is God trying to tell me in this account? Well, there are other apocryphal accounts, like the one 
in the book called The Infancy of Jesus, which occurs in some Bibles, not part of the Bible, but I, some people considered interesting to read, in which it says that Jesus was playing with his playmates in Nazareth and they were making birds and animals out of mud, but Jesus' birds and animals were somehow different because they started flying away. And everyone around said, who is this? This must be somebody special. Obviously the story is false because later it says that Jesus did his first miracle at the wedding of Cana. So the Lord must have had a reason for including this part of his life for us to contemplate and especially it was chosen by our church fathers for the Sunday after Christmas. I'd like to draw three lessons from this story, all of which begin with the letter W. I see that in this story Jesus is teaching us how to worship God. Secondly, he is teaching us how to acquire true wisdom. And thirdly, he's showing us how to go about witnessing to our faith. Worship, wisdom, and witness, all three of which require an effort on our part. The beginning and end of our salvation takes no effort. God did it all. He brought us to faith, and he will take us into everlasting life. But the gap in between is where we come in, and it's work. It is more work being a Christian than going with the flow. And that's what Jesus is trying to show us by his life as a 12-year-old. The first verse says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And some translations say, according to their custom. Now what was the law so far as going to church was concerned at the time of Christ? In the Old Testament, it says that every male Jew shall go to Jerusalem to worship three times a year for three of the church festivals, no matter where they lived. Now, when the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon, they couldn't do that. And when they came back, before the time of Christ, many Jews felt that they should get back into keeping the law of Moses by going to Jerusalem for worship three times a year. But that fell into disuse. And many male Jews did their best to even get there once a year for the most important festival of all, and that was the Passover. Joseph was one of those. It says every year they did that. Not just when Jesus was 12, but for some time before then. And even more impressive is the fact that Mary went because she was not required to go. The law said every male Jew. So Mary and Joseph are setting a godly example for their son by going out of their way to worship the Lord. They walked 70 miles to go to church. They went up to Jerusalem, even though it was south, 
because it was up on a hill and it was a spiritual up to go to Jerusalem to worship. Jesus was accustomed from little on to worship regularly. He was taught that worship is something we do, not that God does for us. He's done his thing, now we do ours. Not to be entertained there, but to show God as best we know how, how we feel about his salvation. How many people don't look at church like they look at shopping? Let's find out which store has the most to offer, and that's where we'll go. God is not putting on a show. We're showing our thanks. Now, it's not the human thing to enjoy that without limit, because Satan is constantly there saying, this is boring, like my students would say when they don't like something in class. And we have to make an effort to do this. And obviously, some people this morning are not making the effort. I was just told there were 800 people here for Christmas, but where are the others? They're obviously not taking this example of Christ seriously. We have to work at it, and God expects us to do that. And Jesus learned it from little on. They took him. Mary took him. She didn't say, son, I'm staying here in Nazareth. You go and worship with your father. She went along. So lesson one that Jesus wants us to learn as God himself, as a young lad, he showed us to make an effort to worship God. Now let's see what he did there. In the middle, <clears throat> it says, and by the way, a little earlier, after the feast was over, they stayed the entire seven days to worship. Some people put in an appearance, they were at the Passover, now they'll go home. They stayed the entire seven days, and even that, Jesus did not find sufficient for worshiping in the house of his father, because he stayed three more days after class. As a teacher, I find this incomprehensible. I haven't had a single student stay three hours after class, much less three days. What was he doing? After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. I couldn't answer questions for three days. I'm impressed by these teachers. Three days of rapping. I remember in the eighth grade in my Lutheran school, there was a big picture on the wall of Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old, and there was something wrong I learned last week when I got ready for this sermon about that picture. It showed Jesus, the 12-year-old, standing there teaching the teachers. That's not what it says at all. It says he was sitting among them, listening to them, and asking them questions. Jesus was learning. He didn't have to learn a thing, but he was learning because he wanted to show us that that's what we should do in the house of God. 
He was asking them questions and he was being reverent and respectful to his teachers. Now as God, he could have gone in there and acted like a smart aleck and been an obnoxious 12-year-old. But he was respectful and it says, in fact, that the teachers were amazed at the way he acted, at his answers. To me, the amazement was the result of the things that his parents had taught him before he was 12. He knew more than the average 12-year-old knew at that time. By Jewish law, a boy becomes of age at age 12. That is what is meant, or I should say coming of age means that he is now obligated to become saturated and knowledgeable about the law of Moses and in the Old Testament. And that's what he was intent on doing. Now, <clears throat> it is obvious from the life of Christ later on that this knowledge of the Bible, of the Old Testament, stayed with him wherever he went. He didn't have to look anything up. He had memorized it. When the devil found him in the wilderness and started tempting, Jesus said, it is written, <clears throat> it is written, it is written, because he had learned it, and he could quote it from little on up. Another thing about the way in which Jesus learned wisdom here is very striking to me as a teacher, and that is that he learned the method of teaching that is considered by educators everywhere as the most effective way to put a point across, and that is to ask questions and to answer with questions. Think for a moment about the way in which Jesus responded to people who came to him during his ministry. In our family Bible class, we're going through the book of John, which is almost a nonstop account of people coming to Jesus and asking them questions. Nicodemus, for example. Nicodemus might have been one of the teachers here. Who knows why Nicodemus came back later to ask Jesus questions. You might have remembered this. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he asked Jesus questions. And every time, Jesus, instead of answering the question didactically, like we so often do as parents and teachers, when people ask us questions and our children to say, this is how it is and that's how it is, he asked them questions in return. And the answer is psychologically very important. <clears throat> when you ask somebody a question and they give you an answer, that answer is not really a part of you. It's a part of the other person. And you say, well, that's what that person said, and so that's what I guess his answer is. But when the person who knows asks you a question in return, it puts your brain in gear. And then you answer the question for yourself, and it becomes an indelible part of you. That is known as the Socratic method. Before the time of Jesus, the Greek philosopher Socrates used this technique with his disciples by always asking them questions. And finally, they couldn't even answer his questions anymore, and where Socrates went wrong was that he, he failed to provide the proper questions 
and finally it resulted in his death. But Jesus was always asking questions that led to eternal life. And there is true wisdom when God works through our own minds and shows us the truth of salvation in his word because Jesus was always directing the questioner to the truth of God. It is written, and then ask questions about it. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Now in the Bible there is a very marked distinction between the words knowledge and wisdom. Proverbs said, Get knowledge, but with all you're getting, get understanding and wisdom. A lot of people have a lot of knowledge. They can recite things like a computer can, but they lack wisdom. Wisdom means to fuse the knowledge into a meaningful way of life. And that is what the Bible means when it says wisdom through Jesus Christ, because that is the ultimate wisdom that serves as our guide now and into eternity. Get wisdom, and the only way you can get a satisfactory philosophy of life and true wisdom is by asking God. It is in this respect that we are always becoming better Christians. Luther put it in the term, the Christ ist immer im Werden, which means a Christian is always in the process of becoming a Christian. That doesn't mean we're not saved. It means that a Christian has the obligation of growing in deeper wisdom in that which God wants him to know. And when we ask God, James 1.5 says, he will give generously to all without finding fault. Generously. I had the habit at Long Island Lutheran High School before every physics test of bowing our heads in prayer. The time is very short, 47 minutes for a physics test, and yet every student reverently bows their heads and even at the end when it's all over with a resounding voice they will say Amen and one of them recently without thinking about it just said Lord I really need this prayer today <laughs> well maybe a little prayer ahead of time would have been, wouldn't have hurt either as again Luther once said you want to know how to study spend a little time in praying because prayer is half of your examination. So knowledge is one thing. Many people have it, but only those whose lives are rooted in Christ have wisdom. The people who lack it are to be pitied. And that's where it comes to our third lesson today. How do we show other people what true wisdom is? How do we witness? What is the most effective way to get another person into the Word of God. That's what all of Christian education is about. That's what the church is here for after we're through worshiping to help us with our witness. And the key lies in the last verse of the Gospel today. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Effective witness comes from growing in wisdom and favor 
with God and men. How could Jesus, true God, grow in wisdom? Well, the thought came to me that God, over thousands of years of telling the people in the Old Testament what to do, on the mountain on Mount Sinai and through Moses, and of getting disgusted with their lack of consistent living, finally decided, now is the time, I'm through talking, I have to show them. And on Christmas he showed them. He said, I'm going to send my son to be a human being like you people so that he can show you what to do. We witness by showing, not by talking. A lot of people talk, but few show their witness. Actions speak louder than words, we say. Jesus' actions is what got people moving. And so it is with us. And that is what it means that he grew in favor with God. God was happy about the way in which the young Jesus showed his essence and wisdom before people. And he grew in favor with people. It is not true that a Christian is supposed to be an obnoxious kind of person in society who is constantly talking about things that other people don't want to hear and who turns people off. We are supposed to be so steeped in the wisdom of God that people will look at us and say, look how that person has it together. I wonder what that person has that I don't have. Look how happy that person looks. And then, hopefully, you don't even have to go up and poke them and say, I want to talk to you about Christ. They'll come to you. And when they do, then we've got to be ready. I was reminded of this last week. We were in the city looking at the store windows. It was bitterly cold, and I wondered later, why did I catch cold in there? But I think God had a purpose. We are looking at a window at Altman's in the bitter cold, and out of the clear blue, a fellow next to me starts talking about religion. I don't know why he picked me. I don't know whether I look particularly religious at Santa Claus in there or what, but he starts talking about the Bible and about the Koran and whether I really believe any of those things and how ignorant most people are that he talks to. They don't have the knowledge that he has and do I really believe in all these things. That's when you breathe a silent prayer to God and say, all right, Lord, now give me the words. Not where's this tract I want to hand him. You've got to say something. And I tried to get away. I was freezing, and he kept me there and kept drilling, hoping that I would say something that would have an effect on his life, which was obviously a rather unhappy one. Otherwise, why would he have been so intent on disproving what I was telling him in answer to his questions. Couldn't understand it. I don't know where he is now. I don't know whether the rest of his life will be changed. But I had an opportunity there for about 15 minutes to witness to our Lord Jesus Christ. I was reminded, too, of how Pastor Ben Zimmerman, who was the flight engineer on that TWA airliner in Beirut recently, witnessed to his face. He spoke at Concordia College not long ago, and I had the privilege to be there. And I asked him, 
whether <coughs> when he read the Bible in the cockpit, his captors with the guns were offended by this. And he said, far from it. He found that the hijackers, when they saw him studying the Bible, were tremendously impressed by the fact that here was a person who thought enough of his faith to exhibit it in a time of crisis, which is probably something they themselves would not be willing to do. And then he said something that I will never forget. Before he got on that airliner, he was in a little church in the West as a Lutheran pastor, and he thought things were rather boring out there. He wondered if God couldn't give him something more exciting to do as a Christian. So he prayed, Lord, use me in some way. And all of a sudden, boom, he's in the middle of world attention in the cockpit of a hijacked airliner. And now he's going all over the world to speak at the request of people to tell what it was like and taking the opportunity to witness to his Christian faith. And he said, I learned one thing as a result of all this. When you pray to the Lord to use you, you better have your bags packed because you don't know what's going to happen. And you better be serious about it because he's going to use you in some way. As the Bible says, if you ask God, he will give you generously and without finding fault. How does a person get ready for this? How does one do what Jesus did to grow in stature and in favor with God and men so that people say, well, I'm going to talk to that person. He's got it together. Well, on TV they always say, stay tuned, folks. We've got to stay tuned. Not just on Christmas. We've got to stay tuned. We've got to become saturated with the Word of God. We've got to keep the pipeline open. We have to pray. The Bible says pray without ceasing. It means our whole lives have to be prayers. What we do has to be a prayer to the Lord. We have to worship and work at it so that it becomes something we do eagerly. Jesus did all of these things. He didn't argue with people. He didn't yell at them. He didn't try to convince them by logic that you've got to go to heaven. He asked them questions so that they would convince themselves as a gift of God that it was through faith in Christ that they will get there. Lincoln was asked one time, and he was a Bible reader, <clears throat> which is something that we don't often hear in histories of the Civil War. I have a book of his daily devotions. Lincoln read the Bible daily, and somebody asked him, President Lincoln, don't you find many things in the Bible difficult to understand? And Lincoln replied, it's not the parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand that give me a problem, it's the parts I do understand. The parts I do understand and that God expects me to live out. In this lesson today, God wants us to live out our worship. He wants us to grow in wisdom and he wants us to become effective witnesses. Only through Christ can we have the power to do these three things. And may the wisdom of God 
and the peace that goes with it and that surpasses all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.